and uh, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn there so that you can read along with me, Ephesians chapter 4, and our verses are 1 through 10 today. If you need to borrow a Bible, there's, there are Bibles on the seat backs of the chair, on the chairs in front of you, and you can use one of those if you'd like. It says here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all that he might fill all things amen so this is the second part of the letter to the ephesians verses our chapters 1 through 3 paul spends time uh, speaking about the hope that we have in christ and he's writing to the ephesian church trying to assure them that the hope that they have and that this hope is not a, 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 a hope that does not disappear, dissipate, uh, get any weaker. It's a reality, and they are working towards this hope in Christ. So everything that they go through, good, bad, ugly, that they have this hope in Christ, and, and he's reassuring them of that. And, and also, a very important message of the first half of Ephesians is that Christ is that hope. And that everything is founded on him. Right? So those are the first three chapters. And then here we see a transition in chapter 4 where he begins to speak about uh, basically practical theology. Uh, he begins to uh, tell the Ephesians on how they should be living according to this hope that they have in Christ. And so now we get to get more in the practical aspect of the letter and I think it's very helpful for us. And the very first thing that is being talked about here after this slight transition is the topic of unity. And not just unity for unity's sake, but this is unity in Christ. So in other words, Paul is speaking about the unity of the church. The unity that is to exist between brother and sisters uh, who make up the church. So he goes from speaking to what believers are called to and now he goes to and speaks about the life that we ought to live. And it's, it, I think it's very helpful, especially starting here with verses 1 through 10. Um, as I said before, the main point of verses 1 through 10 is, is unity, but I, I want us to make sure that we're understanding this correctly. Not unity just for unity's sake, but unity for the sake of Christ. I think that's a really important distinction this morning that we have to realize. And within that unity, um, I also, when we leave this place, I also want you to know that this unity that we're seeking, that this unity and, and the way in which we practice this unity, it's going to be flawed. 
right? It's going to be flawed because of sin. But yet we have this, uh, this command in place for us to grow in the Lord. So no matter how flawed it is, we are being sanctified through it every single day. But when we leave this place, I don't want us looking at this message and saying, you know, we're going to have this, me and my family or me and my church, we're going to have this perfect unity and nothing's going to get away of it. And then when something gets in the way of it, you're just devastated by it. That's, that's not the reality that we live in. We have to deal with sin. And despite the sin that we have, God is calling us to unity. And I think that's what's important. And especially when we're considering what Paul is saying. And this unity that I'm talking about goes deeper than just uh, keeping the peace by getting along. In other words, it goes deeper than just tolerating one another. It's, it's, it, it goes deeper and it's, it's, a, it's a form of worship. If, if we are to do this right, it is a, a, the unity that we, should have, that we have between one another is a form of worship. And it ought to be done um, first in love and we are to serve one another out of reverence for Christ through it. So I think that's important. I want you to keep those things in mind as we talk about uh, this command of, of, of God. First, let's talk about the unity that is in the body of Christ. Um, I like the way Paul begins and he identifies himself as a prisoner for the Lord. Uh, to me, like whenever he starts this way, it, when I think this way, it helps me to uh, get a better perspective of my life and what I'm going through. It helps me to calibrate that my life is not about myself, but God is working out his purpose in my life. And so here in the second part of the letter, Paul begins and says, I am a prisoner for the Lord. Well, he was literally a prisoner um, because he was under house arrest for sharing the gospel. And uh, that's been mentioned several times as we've been preaching through this letter. And we can see that in Acts 28. You can write that down. We're not going to go there. But if you want to go back and study that, uh, he wrote to the Ephesian church whenever he was in, uh, under house arrest at the very end of the book of Acts. Now, Paul had already used similar language in this letter concerning his imprisonment. If you would turn back with me to chapter 3, verse 1. I believe Pastor Laramie was preaching at this time. And, um, but but I, I do remember the verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. He says here, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ... Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So we see the, the uh, similar language that Paul has used in the past concerning uh, his imprisonment for the Lord. Now, we can recognize that the wording in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and then also chapter 4, verse 1, that the wording is slightly different, but the meaning is still the same. Paul is writing to this church, and he is saying, by the providence of God, I am in prison. Or by the providence of God, I am a prisoner. And I, I just think that's a wonderful perspective to have. Um, and, and that's not to side throw off of this sermon or the topic that we're speaking about this morning. But I want you to know that what you are going through today is through the providence of God. It is because of the providence of God. It, this didn't happen to you by chance. God is bringing you through something so that you can learn you can trust, you can worship him when you finish with it. I think that's important for us to recognize. So by God's providence, Paul is a prisoner. And he, in saying that, he is acknowledging the sovereignty of God within his situation. 
And as I said before, I think we must do that also through the good, the bad and ugliness of life. You must know that God is working out his purpose, number one, in you and number two, for you. That's what he's doing. His purpose in you is for his glory. His purpose for you is for your good. And that's what he is doing in your life. Now, since God is directing your steps, you must seek unity with him and with others around you. Like, just take a moment and sit here and look around. Look who's sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you. These are the people you call brothers and sisters in the Lord, right? These are the people you have been called to have unity with. God has said we are one body. And when you look, even if you go all the way back to the Old Testament and you look at the law, there are two tables to the law. Remember, the first four laws are concerning God and our worship of him. And then the last six are concerning uh, our relationship with one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. The first table and love others. Right. Love others as yourself. Second table. And in saying that, what, I mean, what is God commanding us when he gives us the law? He is commanding us to have unity with him and have unity with each other. That's what the law is there for. To, to bring, that's one of the products of the law, to bring unity. Yeah, the law is there so that we can obey the Lord and bring honor to him, but, but it is to bring us together, bring us together with God and bring us together um, with ourselves. And Look, what's awesome about it is that we can't, we, we ourselves can't have unity with God by ourselves. You and I, we can't have unity, uh, true unity with, by ourselves either. In order for both to happen, we need Christ. Christ is the one who unites us to God and brings peace between that relationship. And Christ does the same thing for us. He unites us and, bring peace, and brings peace within our relationship as well. So since God is directing your steps, you must seek unity with him and others to glorify him. Paul says this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I love that in our passage, especially when he talks about bearing with one another in love. You see, Paul basically just said what I told you when I opened up the sermon. I told you when you leave this place, you have to consider the fact that our unity is going to be flawed and there's going to be mistakes made. There's going to be sin involved. Paul understands that, too. When he writes to the Ephesian church, he says, you know, you ought to have these things. You ought to have um, you ought to have humility and gentleness and patience. But don't forget, you need to bear with one another in love because there, there's going to be mistakes. But that's what's part that, that's a part of seeking unity is to have that patience with one another, to, to bear with each other in love, to be eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. See, as a church, this is the kind of unity that you are called to. And it applies to all the Christian relationships that you have. The reason why I mention that is because people hear this verse or they hear these verses and automatically the mind goes to the gathering of the church. When I speak about unity within the body of Christ, it goes to the gathering of the church. And I think that's a good thing. But for for you, for us, it shouldn't stop there. It goes beyond the gathering of the church. 
You know, we, we laugh about Sunday mornings a lot of times, um, you know, just, just how things go within the family just to get here on Sunday morning. There's, there's, there's not much unity that goes on on the way over here to church. But then what do we do when we get here? When we get here, we kind of, we feel that urge, that, that, that tug to unify with one another. And, and, and we, we, try, we try to, despite what we've been through at home, we come here and we know like, okay, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to unify with them. So what happens? We try real hard here. But what about in other places in our lives? You know, we are Christians and we lead Christian households. So that call to unity is not just a gathering of the church on Sunday morning or Wednesday nights or whenever we gather, but that calling to have unity, it goes first and foremost within your families. That's where it starts. But how much of us have disunity in our family? How much of us really don't work towards that? We focus so much on the gathering of the church and we forget that you have a church in your home. And it starts with our marriage relationships. It starts with our relationships between parents and children. It, starts in, it goes to other places of your life too as well. Your places of employment. And look, I'm speaking uh, directly about Christian to Christian relationships because that's what Paul is talking about here. I'm not necessarily speaking about Christian to non-Christian relationship. That's a whole different ordeal, and we have to handle that a different way. There's a special kind of love that Christians should have for one another, and there's a specific kind of unity that God has called us to. But if we are going to talk about true unity, and if we are ever going to unify as a church, it must begin in our homes. The work, the effort, the sacrifice, it starts there. And then it pours into us gathering as believers. Paul is wise in saying what he has said. This church was going to face extreme persecution. As I told you before, this was a healthy church, but they were not in a healthy place. Maybe that's what makes a healthy church. When the church has to come together, when they are being persecuted, when everything is against them, when evil forces are combating them, they have nowhere else to turn but each other. Paul's telling them, look, you have a hard job. You have a tough job. You have to witness. You have been called to be God's witnesses to this corrupt, evil city. And so in order for you to do that and to be strengthened, you need to be unified. So are you striving to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called in your home, in your church? Are you also applying this calling to your relationships with other Christians in all facets of your life, within, uh, in your job, within your friendships, within your extended family? Um, let's even include social media. How many, how, how sad is social media nowadays where you cannot even, even on these so-called Christian pages or Christian uh, whatever, 
websites where you have dialogue with one another, there's just disunity, hatred. There's just a bunch of stuff going on that is ungodly. And again, I'm speaking about Christian-to-Christian relationship. A lot of that is ungodly. So how are, are, are we going to change that? Well, we know it starts with one. It starts with one person. We're in charge of ourselves. But as Paul alluded to in the previous chapters, Christians have a very difficult calling to share the gospel, to, to be united, and to do all this for the honor and glory of God. And that's the greater purpose. When we talk about unity, we need to know that because that's the greater purpose. We need to, and, and, and please consider my words, in love, we need to get over ourselves. We really do. See, if your relationship with another Christian is toxic or chaotic, now don't just picture here, okay? Remember what I said earlier, that it starts in your home. Again, automatically, we go to the gathering of the saints. We say, yeah, I do have a problem with this brother or sister. But what about the brother or sister that you're married to? What about the brother or sister that's your child? What's it, what about the brother or sister that is actually your biological brother or sister? These are the people that I want you to focus on. Because this is where it gets difficult, but God is calling you to unity there as well. So if you have this toxic relationship with this person, with this other Christian, it's because there's disunity in the relationship. You see, within that relationship, there is a lack of what Paul's talking about here in our verses. There's a lack of humility. There's a lack of gentleness. There's a lack of patience. And there's a lack of love for the sake of Christ. Now, I'm not telling you you don't love that person. I'm just telling you the way in which you express your love, the way in which you express things, it's selfish in nature. Because if it's for the sake of Christ and for the reverence of Christ, you wouldn't worry about how you're going to end up in this situation. You wouldn't worry about if you're going to be taken advantage of. You wouldn't worry about who does more than the other. You would do it out of the sake of Christ. You would do it out of worship. Now, I stand here and I tell you that, and I know how difficult it is. It requires a lot of humbling. And, and we don't master this. We do not master this. We just continue to bring it up in our mind that God is calling us to it and that through everything we go through, we trust in him that he is growing through us as we follow his word. or he, We trust that he is gro- growing us through it as we follow his word. You see, just because it's impossible here and now doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek it. We might look at the other person and we're like, they're never going to change. Believe me, I've been there. I've thought that. They're never going to change. But listen, that's not true. If they are a Christian, God is changing them every day. Outwardly, they're wasting away, but what's happened inwardly? They're being renewed day by day. So if you're looking at the other Christian and you're saying they're never going to change, then 
you are, you are questioning the power and sovereignty of God. That's why we go back to Paul being a prisoner for the Lord. God is working. He is working things out in that person just as he is doing to you. So in order for us to fix that relationship with that person, with that, let me be more specific, with that other Christian, number one, we need to seek repentance. Number two, we need to seek forgiveness from that person. And number three, we need help from above. If we are going to have this unity that Paul speaks of, speaks of here in Ephesians chapter four. But then he not only says this is the way we ought to act, but then I love the fact that he gives the basis for our unity and he talks about why we ought to act this way. And he talks about us having one God, one Lord and one spirit. See, in our passage, Paul points to the basis of our unity. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul gives them the reason. Not only like, oh, this is what you should do, but this is why you should do it. You ever tell your kids, this is the way you should act, and they say, why? Right? They say, why? And, and you know, sometimes our flesh gets a hold of us as parents, and we say, because I said so. Is that always the right answer? No, it's not. That is part of the answer. But the reason why we do anything in this life is for the glory of God, right? For the honor and glory of God. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, this is the way you should act. This is the type of unity you should have. This is what you have to work on in your unity. But don't do this just for the sake of saying that you are close or just to get to know somebody That's not the purpose of the Christian's unity. The the purpose of the Christian's unity is founded in the fact that we have one God, we have one Lord, we have one spirit. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And he doesn't say this, the purpose of you and your unity is just so that you can treat the other person nice and good. Or he doesn't say just because the other person deserves it. We know that's pretty much never the case the relationships we have we know the other person doesn't deserve it but Christ always does so Paul uses the word one seven times in our passage now when I look at that that shows how important unity is to God but also it also shows the many ways that we as a body of believers are unified as Christians. You ever meet somebody and you find out your long lost cousins or relatives? What do you start to do whenever you find out that this person might be kin to you? You start to talk about your, your, your kinship. You begin to start speaking about like, okay, this was my grandfather, this was my aunt, this was my uncle. You start talking about lineage and everything. You know, you bring all that in and you talk about that so that you can find out how you are related, how you are kin. In essence, this is what Paul's doing. He's like, you are called to this unity because you are unified. 
you are unified by God and you are unified in so many ways. And I love the way that Paul lists it out, lists this out and he tells us how we are unified. We are unified because we have, we're part of one body. There is one spirit that is at work in us. We all have one hope. We all have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one baptism. We have one God and we have one father. And we're tied together like nothing else. You see, this, this bond that we have, it, it, it cannot be broken. We're going to be together forever. I know that's a scary thought sometimes, huh? It cannot be broken because Christ cannot be broken. Paul says, you are unified if you like it or not. And you are unified in so many ways. We don't even realize it. You see, because us, we look at flesh and blood and we, 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 we see the world in that way right now. But there's a greater revelation that God is teaching us through his word that, that our unification is, is, is held together and it is founded in the blood of Christ and that is a deep deep relationship. And that's why it's important for us to maintain the bond of peace that we have. The disunity between the church, we have to address that as well. You see, there is disunity. Why? Because there is sin. There is unwillingness from us to be his image bearers within a given situation. We have disunity when we think we know better than God. When we act contrary to what his word says. When we do those things, yeah, we bring disunity, disorganization, strife, fighting, we bring that into our relationships. And we have to take ownership of that. That's why there is a need for repentance. You see, it doesn't just happen. There are so many people who think that, and that's worldly thinking to where, like, for example, a marriage. Sometimes you'll hear somebody and they'll say, this couple will say, well, we just fell out of love. Oh, you didn't fall out of love. Crawled your way out of it. You crawled. You fought out of it. You, you, you took responsibility for that. It wasn't something that happened to you. You were the cause of this disunity now that you are experiencing. And until we're, re we're ready to take accountability for that, our part, then we're, we're never going to move past that disunity that we have with that person think about the things that we deal with here now even within the church there's separation of the church we understand that there is a universal church a worldwide church it's not just us but God's church is throughout the world but yet we are separated we're separated by doctrine we're separated by pride we're separated by race. 
And many churches today, we're separated by all kind of demographics. Churches are, are built upon, you know, in some churches, they're built upon. Uh, the, you, I know in town, whenever I, when, I was, when I was younger, I'd recognize churches of, although that's a wealthy church, that's the poor church. That's the black church, that's the Hispanic church. Oh, that's the Methodist church, that's the Baptist church, that's the Episcopalian church, that's the Lutheran church, and on and on and on and on. Do you think God intended that? No. How about, I bring marriage up again because it's important. Extremely important. But how about the divorce rate within the church? Did God intend it that way? No. How about the disharmony in churches today where congregations split over preferences? Over what type of music is playing? Or anything else, any other silly thing? Right now, right now, our Southern Baptist Conference right now is, is, I think it's about to happen, coming up this week. And there couldn't be a better picture of disharmony than that conference. Bringing in all kinds of worldly things. Politics. Just silly, worldly things that are dividing a huge group of believers. This happens when we forget about the real thing. When we forget about what's important. When we forget about the calling that we have as Christians. You see, when we look at all those things, the separation of the church, divorce, disharmony within the church, when we look at that, we understand that that was not God's intention. Why? Because, well, first of all, we know that God sovereignly works in those things to redeem the situation. How great is our God? That he can, he can do something so wonderful out of the mess that we make. How great is our God that he can do that? So we know that he is working in those relationships to bring glory to his name. But they were not part of creation. That's how we know they were not part of his intent. They entered through sin. In other words, God didn't create these things. God didn't create a separation of the church. He didn't create divorce. He didn't create disharmony. Those things happen because of sin. And that's why I say when we look at our relationships, we have to look at ourselves first and foremost. And as Christians, we, after we look at ourselves, we must look to the perfect example of a life lived for the sake of having unity with God. When we look at Christ, he, he alone is our wonderful and perfect example of the way we ought to act and the way we ought to be. See, Christ personified perfect humility by taking on flesh, by entering his creation to save it, 
and to unify in his blood. And that's exactly what Paul speaks about here at the end of the passage. Listen to this. He makes reference to Christ and how he descended into the lower regions of the earth. What does that mean? Exactly what I just said. He took on flesh. He entered his creation. And if he's the one who descended, this is what Paul says. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. See, we must see that Christ is our standard when it comes to humility, when it comes to gentleness, when it comes to patience, when it comes to love towards one another. Christ is our standard. He truly is. Now, I'm not saying that we, can, we, you know, we can't look up to other people and admire these traits in other people, but when we talk about who we should be or who we should become, it's Christ. He is our Savior, and he is our example. So when we look at ourselves and we see where we fall short, it's because we are setting Christ as our example for those things, the humility, the gentleness, the patience, and the love. Listen, that is what leaves you without an excuse in any of your relationships. That's why we can't, if we're looking towards Christ as our example, we can't treat others the way they are treating us. Because his word says otherwise, right? We all know that. Think about how Christianity would be if the word said, treat others as they treat you. It'd be horrible. He doesn't give us that out. He commands us to unity, despite how others are treating us. Also, when we look to Christ as our example, it takes out the excuse that it's not fair. takes that excuse out as well. First thing in the relationships that I, that I see a lot is that, well, I'm doing a whole lot more than this other person. It's not fair. Or I'm dealing a lot with, with, in comparison to the other person or other people in my family or even in my church, I'm serving a whole lot more than these other people. It's not fair. See, what is that doing? It's putting the attention on yourself. It's hard because you're, you're being self-centered, but at the same time, you're suffering. But the reason why you're suffering is because you're being self-centered. It's this constant loop that I know all too well about. Pastors are, all pastors are guilty of this right here. We look at what we do in the church how much we do, when we do it. No one understands us. No one's serving like us. I just wish I, just wish I, I could have help. Like these are all the things that, that, that go through a pastor's mind sometimes. Then you forget why you're doing what you're doing. God, in his providence, has us where we're at. I thank God that I've had those feelings, that I've had those thoughts, because it was through that that God grew me. God said, you, 
through his word, God said, you ain't done nothing. You ain't done nothing that's any more special than anybody else. See, you and I, we have been called to be Christ-like. We have been called to be Christ-like. And Paul, I can't put it any better than Paul. Paul says here, understand your calling. Remember, chapters 1 through 3, this is the hope to which you've been called to. You have this wonderful hope in Christ. Now chapters 4 through 6, be Christ-like. And he says here, if you are going to be Christ-like, and this is what you have been called to, now, now you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You are a Christian because you have been called to be Christ-like. Now, start walking the walk. So, before we leave, I really want us to think about that other person. Think about that other person that's been on your mind this whole time in this sermon. That other Christian that you're having difficulty submitting to, getting along with, understanding. If you're honest with yourself, that person's a whole lot closer than you ever thought. It's not just this brother or this sister or, or, or this person in this church. It's not just that. I guarantee if you really, really look at your relationships, are you working at unity starting in your home? I need a lot of work in that area. I think we all do. But we have to start humbling ourselves. We have to start walking in a manner of the calling, in a manner of the calling that we have to be Christ-like. Let's pray.